Welcome to the Hillside Community Church Podcast. Wherever you're at in your faith, we hope this episode encourages you. If you enjoy the listen, let your friends know, and we'll catch you next time. Well, good morning. Uh, you know, just a few summers ago, I was uh, trying to figure out if I wanted to go to seminary, uh, trying to figure out if I wanted to go back to school, get a master's in theology. And uh, I had some barriers I was trying to, to overcome just to see if I, if I really could go. And uh, one of them was, uh, you know, the, the amount of hours this thing is, is 120 credit hours, just massive. And um, trying to figure out if, you know, just weighing the cost, if, if it was worth it. And especially one of the, one of the hurdles was they, they make you be part of a small group for the first two years that doesn't count towards those 120 hours. It doesn't give you any credit hours towards that degree. And you have to be part of this small group weekly for two years. It's just another thing I'd be having to drive out to Dallas for. So honestly, I was trying to get out of it. I was trying to get out of this small group. I felt like I had community coming out my ears and uh, I felt like I didn't need another group. So uh, I was told, you know, hey, you can go and you can try and get a hold of the, the director of the department and um, just set up a phone meeting with him. So I emailed the guy, I tried to set up a phone meeting, and he would not meet with me over the phone. He wouldn't do it. And uh, I told him, I said, look, I can't drive all the way out there for a 15-minute meeting. And he said, then I'll come to you. And I thought, well, wait a minute, this guy is head of the department there, he's, he teaches courses there at the seminary, and he's the lead pastor at his church in Dallas. I wasn't even a student yet, wasn't even a number in their system yet, and he said, I'll come to you. And so we end up meeting a coffee shop here in Keller, and first thing I do, I sit down, I'm like, hey, thank you so much for coming out here. Why would you drive all the way out from Dallas when we could have met over the phone? And what he said without elaborating on it at all, what he said was probably the most profound thing that has impacted my life and ministry over the past four years. I said, why would you, why would you drive all the way out here? And, and he said, because I think there's something profound about the incarnation. And that was it. I think there's something profound about the incarnation. There's something profound about physical presence. And we've seen it in 2020. We've seen this lack, this void of presence in our lives. We've seen this void, especially if you just got done um, having to modify your Thanksgiving plans. Uh, Or if you're modifying whatever you're, you're doing for Christmas. We felt a void in 2020, a void of, of presence. And that's what Advent is about. It's about presence. It's about specifically the anticipation and the longing for God's presence. And that first Advent, that incarnation, God taking on flesh, it's a, it's a profound mystery. It's not something you can solve, but something that has to be entered into and explored and appreciated, but not solved. Uh, Irenaeus was one of the uh, early church fathers. He said this, he said, talking about the incarnation, he said, he became what we are so that we might become what he is. He became like us so that we could become, like, like Peter says in 2 Peter, uh, 
partakers of the divine nature. Somehow, in some way, become partakers of the divine nature. And so uh, we're going to explore a little bit of, of that mystery today. But as we do, like, hear the words of Athanasius. This is another early church father. When he's, he's, he's cautioning us as we're looking into this. He says, in short, the achievements of the Savior affected through his incarnation are of such a kind and so great that if anyone wished to expound them, he would be like those who gaze at the vast expanse of the sea and wish to count the number of its waves. There's something profound about the incarnation. And since we're in this season of, of Advent, um, we're going we're gonna to just peek inside. We're just going to peek inside of it. And, and my hope is that we realize um, our need, our need for presence, the thing that we've been missing so much this year, specifically God's presence. Because um, the whole story of the Bible, the whole story of the Bible is God getting his presence to his people. Pete said the same thing a few weeks ago. It's the whole story of the Bible, God getting his presence to his people. So today we're looking at Psalm 27, which is not a, um, it's not a traditional Christmas or Advent text, but it's looking through the lens of David, looking at that longing and that anticipation for God's presence. So the first thing he says in Psalm 27 the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom should I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom should I dread? Look at his words that he uses for God here. He's his light and his salvation and his defense or his refuge. Now, light is a, is a big theme in Advent. You know, we light these Advent candles because they symbolize, symbolize uh, what John said of, of God, Jesus being the light that coming into the world enlightens every man. The darkness can't overcome it. And light, light is something that naturally, it automatically dispels, it scatters the darkness. And so it's anticipation of this light coming into the world. Um, he calls him light and salvation. It may have even been a reminder for these Israelites of when they were brought out of Egypt, uh, brought out of bondage and slavery, and they had this light in front of them leading the way at night. And they had this pillar behind them that was a physical barrier between them and the Egyptians, light and salvation. So David says, he's my light, he's my salvation, he's my, my refuge, my defense. And then he says this, when evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and they fell. Past tense, that when this happened, they, they came against me. They stumbled and they fell. Why? Because God's faithfulness. Because God was faithful in the middle of it. And so he says, if this has happened, I'm looking back at what God has done. And if this has happened right here, this is past tense. This is, this is future. Now, because I know God's faithfulness, if an army encamps against me, my heart will not fear. If war rises against me in spite of this, I'm confident because he's seen the faithfulness of God. He's seen God's presence. But what is the source of David's confidence here? Comes in in, in verse 4. He says, One thing, one thing I've asked from the Lord, that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days 
of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. This is David's one thing. This is his one thing above everything else. His one thing in his mind, the singular pursuit, is God's presence. He's asked him. He's actively seeking it. But it's to dwell, to live. Look at the words that he uses. In the house of the Lord, he talks about his temple. In the next verse, he talks about the tabernacle. It's because at this time, if you wanted to experience God's presence, he localized his presence in a place. He localized it in a place. And so David knew if, if he's going to experience the presence of God, he's going to the tabernacle. That's where I find it. He wants to behold his beauty, to meditate in his temple. He wants to see and to know God intimately. That was his one thing. And David knew he'd find God's presence in the tabernacle. But where do we look? Where do we look? How, how do we apply David's one thing to our situation? Because you remember, the whole story, again, the whole story of the Bible, is God getting his presence to his people. But it's looked different at different times in history. For David, it was a place. God localized his presence in a place. But we're going to see how God has brought his presence in a person, and he's, he's brought his presence in a people as well. The, the first one, the place, God said, have them construct a sanctuary for me so that I may dwell among them. I want to live among them. I want to be with them. But this, this presence, this place, it was exact. You have to be exact. He gave them exact specifications for it. It was ornate. There was, there was beauty around it. It had to be according to an exact design. There had to be a, a specific way to approach God. And then only by specific people. Understand this was a dangerous presence. This was a dangerous presence. If the people wanted God to live among them, then they, they had to approach God a certain way. But at Jesus' advent, his, his incarnation, when he took on flesh, God's presence went from supremely dangerous to extraordinarily delicate. From dangerous to delicate. In the Old Testament, you mishandle the presence of God, you die. In the New Testament, you mishandle the presence of God, he dies. That's a big difference. And he did. That was part of the plan all along. From this dangerous presence to a delicate presence. But why? Why would he do that? All this took place so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet would be fulfilled. Behold, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they shall name, they shall name him Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. With, that word with, God wants to be with us. I picked up a book recently um, by Samuel Wells. It was called Incarnational Ministry. And in it, he talks about, he starts the book by saying that this word with is the most important word in the Bible. The most important word in the Bible. God with us is, is, is what the whole story is about. 
Think about it. What is salvation if it's not bringing us back into a right relationship with him? What is forgiveness? If I tell you your sins are forgiven, what is forgiveness except breaking down that barrier, breaking down that wall to be with God? And the lengths that God would go to make that happen, that, that should fill us with awe and with wonder. Because remember, in the Old Testament, here we go, the Old Testament, it was delicate. I mean, I'm sorry, it was detailed. It was detailed. It was ornate. It was exact. You would think with this list of, of, of how to approach God's presence, you think, okay, he's coming in the flesh. There's going to be this long list of things we're going to have to do. Hey, Jesus is coming to town. He's going to be here at 759. You've got to make sure his trailer is right at 76 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, he only drinks Fiji water. It's got to be 10 degrees lower than room temperature. Those green M&Ms, they got to go. He hates those. Right? You would think, like a, like a pompous star, the way that you had to approach God's presence in the Old Testament, you would think there would be all of these, all of these requirements for him to come and be there in the flesh. But what's the reality of the New Testament? I want to see a nativity scene that wrestles with the birth happening at the time. I want to see a nativity scene where it's happening. One that wrestles with the fact that you've got a, a Middle Eastern teenage girl and a teen pregnancy who is, who is trying to, you know, she was all ready for marriage. She's all ready to, to get her life started. And now she's got to somehow explain at the dinner parties that this is not Joseph's baby. Yeah, it's God's. Like, who's... Try, try letting that one fly. Yeah, that, this is God's baby, right? She didn't have a sanitized hospital bed. She's got a home birth, but far away from home. The back of a Motel 6 with the animals watching and everything is an unsanitary situation that God came in and entered in this world. You know, I saw, um, I was in the room with both of my daughters being born. And uh, my second daughter, I actually got to, um, to, to, the doctor let me pull her out, which was crazy. You know, there's, you know, everybody talks about the miracle of birth. You know, it is, there's something amazing about being in the room and, and the miracle of birth. But let me tell you something, she was slippery. I thought I was going to drop her. <laughs> and this is in a sanitary situation. I didn't have the donkey looking at me with the mad eyes, like, hey, you're bleeding on the hay I'm eating for breakfast tomorrow. <laughs> That's only the beginning of the lengths God would go to be with us. Even just think about Jesus' time on earth. Uh, that book, Incarnational Ministry, he, he, he talks about, um, you know, if we just take what we have in the Gospels, and look at Jesus' life, the big stuff that we talk about, salvation, um, his death, his burial, his resurrection, that's probably, if we're talking time-wise, not importance, but if we're talking time-wise, probably less than 1% of his, of his 33 years on earth. Mostly focused into Passion Week. He's working for us, doing something that only he could do. But if you look at the three years of his public ministry, this is less than 10% of his life. He's, he's working with us. He's empowering his disciples, getting them ready to lead the church. 
That's still less than 10% of his life from what we know, what we have recorded. 90% of his life from what we know is just him being with us. 30 years of his life, 30 years of mostly unrecorded, ordinary, seemingly insignificant moments. Why? Because salvation was the reason that he came, but he came so that he could be with us. And so he did what he loved to do, and he spent the majority of his time being with, being with us. Just think about the moments in your life where, uh, you know, with, with your family, with those closest to you. Is it what they do for you that makes you want to be around them, or is it just being with them? It, take the Thanksgiving and Christmas example again. Is it the turkeys and the presents, or did you feel a void because the presents, you didn't have a physical presence there. You were missing their presence there with you. It's being with each other. Uh, my my uh, older daughter, Aria, um, she, she loves right now, if you ask her, hey, what's Christmas all about? Um, you should see my, my wife's face when she first answered this, first heard her say this. But you say, hey, Aria, what's Christmas all about? And she goes, presents. And my wife goes, like, she's looking at me like, what are you teaching this kid? And then I ask her, what kind of presents? And she goes, God's presence with us. More, I was like, okay, I gotcha. I gotcha. But she knows it's not about presence. It's about presence. It's about God with us. And see, the fact that Jesus came in the flesh as an embodied being, it elevates and dignifies even our just normal, ordinary interactions as human beings. The fact that he came and he took on flesh, that dignified who we are as human beings in the ordinary moments. God, who spoke creation into existence, he didn't phone in salvation. He didn't just send a, a, a message and a roadmap to get back to him. He sent himself in the flesh. When he healed, he proved he could do it with just a word. And how often, though, did he go up to the, to the leprous person that no one else wanted to, to even go near and touch them to heal them? He wanted to be with them. There's something profound about the incarnational ministry that Jesus modeled for us. Um, it serves as a hinge to where we're going next. So he, he localized himself in a place, the tabernacle. You had to go there to find him. Then he localized himself in a person, in the flesh, in Jesus. And now he localizes, or he, he, he puts his presence, he mobilizes it in his people. So watch this. At, at, at the final dinner, the final last supper, Jesus has got all his, his, his closest people together, and he's telling them, I am going away. I'm about to die. I'm going away. I'm going to have to leave you. But he says, I'm not going to leave you without a presence. I'm not going to leave you without a presence. Look at what he says. 
I will ask the Father, he will give you another helper so that he may be with you forever. The helper is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him. Why? Because he remains with you and in you. With you and in you. This is the, the, the presence that, that God wants us to have. Uh, look what he says here. I will not leave you as orphans. What does he say? I am coming to you. This is right before his death. Now, some people, some of the commentators, they'll say, you know, that, that, um, that he's talking about his post-resurrection appearances, the 40 days that, you know, after he rose from the dead, he's appearing to his disciples. Here's, here's my first beef with this, okay? If I, as a dad, say, hey, look, girls, uh, I'm leaving. I'm not going to leave you as orphans, though. Like, I'll come back for 40 days, and then I'm out. I've still left you as an orphan, right? I've still left you as an orphan. And look at the, look at the context here. Just five verses later, um, Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will follow my word, and who? My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our dwelling with him. The Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit, the Godhead, the Trinity, making home in us. This is the most intimate presence yet. He didn't leave us without a presence. That's why 1 Corinthians says that we're temples of the Holy Spirit. We are now the dwelling place of God. And as Pete has been preaching, we're not only temples, we're also priests. Priests have a job to do. A priest's job is a mediator. Okay, a priest would, would go between. It would take the people and bring them to God, but then it would take the presence of God and bring it to the people. And I think when Peter's talking about this, I think his primary uh, focus is on us bringing God's presence to the world. But there is a very real sense that when we meet together, we are experiencing the presence of God through each other. We are experiencing the presence of God through one another. I think of it um, almost like a chemical reaction on a metaphysical level. Like when two people have the Holy Spirit and they come together, there's just something there. My, uh, one of my professors, he calls it presence by proxy. Like a presence waiting for the other presence. Because while we wait for Jesus' second advent, we're experiencing the presence of God in a real way through each other. So we had God's presence in a place, localized in a place, God's presence localized in a, in a person, Jesus Christ, and then God's presence mobilized through his people. So let's get back to David and his one thing. Verse 8 here. When you said, he's talking to God, when you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, I shall seek your face, Lord. Now, one thing that, that's interesting in here, this, this is actually at the front of this sentence. Um, this is an updated NASB version, and they, they actually they moved it around a little bit, but I like it the old way where it had it at the front of the sentence. Like It's like, your face, my, the one thing, that's it, my singular focus, my singular purpose in life, your face, O oh Lord, I shall seek. Your face. It's a 
single pursuit, singularity of purpose. So what's your one thing? What is your one thing that you're pursuing that's consuming you above everything else? It'll change at, at, at different times, uh, different seasons. I know that, that it, it fluctuates for me sometimes. I, my, the presence of God is not always the thing that consumes me. I hate it. There are lesser things that consume me sometimes. But what is the one thing right now that's consuming you? A promotion, efficiency, safety, health, new things, uh, the next trip, a romantic interest. What is your one thing? I know with, with David, as he's pursuing God's presence, pursuing that one thing. Remember, he said it would be where? In the tabernacle. House of God. That's where God, that's where David would go to find God's presence. So where do we find it today? I think there's two places that you go to seek the presence of God. There's the prayer closet and there's community. There's the closet that alone time, it represents that alone time with God, that, that earnest seeking through Scripture and through prayer, earnestly seeking his face. Um, Thomas Manton, uh, a Puritan author, was talking about the importance of this alone time with God. And I'm just going to read this to you. He said, Without seeking God often, the vitality of the soul is lost. We may as well expect a crop and harvest without sowing as living grace without seeking God. Now listen to this. God is first cast out of the closet and then out of the family and within a little while out of the congregation. Omit secret prayer, he says, and some great sin will follow. A man who is often with God does not dare to offend him so freely as others do. You omit that secret prayer. God is first cast out of the closet and then out of the family and eventually out of the community. That time alone with God seeking his face is vital. But the other piece of that is community. The other way that we seek his face is in community. Because in a very real sense, remember, we are experiencing the presence of God through each other, the dwelling places of God. And that means something. That means that you should expect every time that you go into community, that you rub shoulders with somebody, that you're passing in the hallway, you should expect to see God. There should be an expectation in us when we're meeting together that you see God move. Maybe you have something to, to, some word to share with somebody else. Maybe it's just your presence listening to them. But there should be an expectation when we meet together. We should be expecting it. And, and we should be intentional we should be intentional in how we go out and seek out that community. Right now, we are having a, probably the biggest time of isolation in our, in our lives. You talk about a, a period of, of mental health, emotional health, 
we, we're all struggling on some front. Every single one of us is having, having um, feelings maybe that you haven't had before, thoughts you haven't had before. We're experiencing isolation in a different way than we've ever experienced, especially right now in the holidays. We can't be isolated. I know, I know, I know we have Zoom fatigue. I know that's a thing. Like, that's what they're going to be diagnosing people with in the future is Zoom fatigue. I know we're tired of Zoom because it's not the real deal. We know it's not the real deal. There's something about physical presence. But in the meantime, if you can't gather, get on Zoom. Get with people. It's still presence in some sort. Even if it's not the ideal, incarnational, physical presence, seek out other people who will show you the presence of God. Seek it out. I know when I'm on a trip, and I am, I am so thankful for FaceTime when I'm on a trip. I get to see my, my family. I get to hear them. I get to see the girls climbing over mom trying to get in front of the camera. And I'm so thankful for it. But you know what FaceTime does for me is it only makes me long more for the physical presence when I get home and they start climbing on me too. It's good, but it's not the real deal. And we're in a season right now, I think it's ironic, we're in a season right now that is emphasizing this longing and this desperation for presence. And we're experiencing that void. We're experiencing what it's like to really long for a presence in our lives. Probably more than any other time. Advent, too, it's, it's not just about a future hope. You know, in Advent, we, we talk about the, the prophets. We talk about their expectation for this hero to come, this Messiah. And we empathize with their feeling because we also know the feeling and the longing for Jesus to come back again and set things right. But when we're caught between these two Advents, what are you hoping for and longing for now? What are, you, what are you hoping, looking for God's salvation now? David says this, I certainly believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord. Where? In the land of the living. In the land of the living. He is confident that he's going to see the goodness of God here and now. Not just future, but here and now. And you know what's funny about the way this is translated? This is a good translation of it. It's, it's bringing out his certainty that he's going to see the goodness of God. But in the Hebrew, this is actually an incomplete sentence. You ever have one of those times where... Um, you just need something, and you, you can't even express how bad you need it and go, if I just had this, or if, man, if I don't get this thing, that's, that's the feel in, in, in Hebrew, this incomplete sentence. He says, if, this is how it would read, if I had not believed that I would 
that I would see the, the goodness of God here in the land of the living? And he just breaks off. The implication being, where would I be? Where would I be? We are a people with a future hope. But if our hope is only future, you know, we have these, these Advent candles. We lit the first one last week. This is the prophet candle. It represents hope. The hope of, of the prophets who, who knew, they saw it from a long way off, they knew their hero would come. And they longed for it and they anticipated it. And the one that we're lighting to get today is the Bethlehem candle. And it represents faith. Specifically the, the faith of Mary and Joseph as they traveled to Bethlehem, stepping out in faith, believing just like David that they would see the goodness of God here in the land of the living. Now, I'm going to see God move now. I want you to imagine with me, Mary, nine months pregnant, imagine her about to give birth, feeling the kicks of the baby and saying, that's God. That's God inside me. If you have given your life to Christ, you can say the same thing. That's God inside me. That's God inside me. If you haven't given your life to Christ, I want to give you an opportunity. I want to give you an opportunity to, to step into that same hope today. To be able to say with the same hope, you know what, I believe I will see the goodness of God here in the land of the living. So we're going to pray together and, and as we do, if that's you, just pray something like this along with me. God, uh, we thank you. We thank you for who you are. God, we know. God, I know I'm a sinner. I know I have fallen short of your standard and that you are a dangerous presence. But I also know that if you came in the flesh, making yourself delicate, that you are also loving and good. And even though I've fallen short of your standard, you've made a way and I am desperate, desperate for your presence in my life. God, I ask that you would be my one thing, my one thing above everything that consumes me. And I ask that you would make me a dwelling for your presence to bring you glory. God, for the rest of us in here, God, I ask that we would be more aware of your presence, that we would have a greater expectation when we are around each other that we're gonna see your goodness here and now while we're waiting for you to come again. So God, we pray that you come again soon, but until you do, we just ask to see that goodness, to see your presence. 
Thank you for our time together. In Jesus' name, amen.